sympathy, empathy, they're highly biased. And I think we become our best when we make decisions and we pull away from these biased emotions and we apply more fear and impartial methods. Welcome to the On Wisdom podcast with Charles Casti and Igor Grossman. Over the next hour, we'll be dissecting the latest research from the emerging field of wisdom science. We'll be discussing what it means for each of us and for society in terms of reasoning and living more wisely in the 21st century. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Please carry on rating us in iTunes. It's actually rather a sort of Kafka-esque process to work out how to actually get into iTunes and rate rate stuff. I was kind of looking at it today. It's kind of involved, so we do appreciate if you do that. Thanks very much. Today's episode, episode eight, is called The Dark Side. That will probably reveal itself as to why later. And when I think of The Dark Side, often I think of Paul Bloom. We have Paul Bloom with us today. So, um, Paul, would you... Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you, firstly, for coming. Thank you. That's a, that's, a hell, that's a hell of an introduction. Absolutely. Would you, rather than me sort of kind of getting it a little bit wrong, perhaps you could introduce yourself, tell us who you are and, and kind of what you're up to. Sure. Uh, I'm Paul Bloom. I'm a professor of psychology at Yale University, and I'm interested in a lot of things. My, uh, my day job is a developmental psychologist, so I do research on children. But um, one theme that carries through all my work is uh, I'm very interested in morality and our sense of right and wrong. So I've written a book recently called Against Empathy, where I argued that empathy, though it has many strengths, is a poor moral guide. And recently I've become quite interested in cruelty. And so I've written a few pieces on exploring the nature of cruelty, why we're cruel to others, what motivates cruelty, and what we get out of it. Yeah. So it's probably becoming clear why why we titled the episode The Dark Side. That's kind of where we're at. Thank you very much for joining us on the show. And uh, Igor, are you, uh, are you feeling trepidatious about approaching these sort of darker sides of humanity? Oh, trepidatious. I and mean, I love it. This is the best. I mean, this is my, yeah, my, my, my I, I, Russian I side is like right away. So it's like, oh, yes, negative stuff. Finally. Yeah, I, I, know, I know Igor. He has a streak of cruelty in him. Yeah, <laughs> very yeah. cruel Actually, man. Yeah, that makes sense. He was strongly suggesting we need to get Paul on, and I was I was thinking Paul, the compassionate guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's get him on. Turns out there's, there's a lot of levels to this. Um, we there's a few kind of questions just to kind of dive in. That we're going to go into a lot of detail later, but I kind of wanted to start with this this idea of when we're distressed, who do we turn to? So, Igor, if you I I can't imagine you ever have a bad day, Igor. You, you know full of beans, always so, you know, you've got that glint in your eye. But if you, you're having a, some sort of crisis, you can't get a good coffee. Right. You know, who do you go to? This is not an advert for coffee. I mean, like, who do you go to when you're distressed? And what do you want from them? Well, that's a that's a great question. I mean, I guess for coffee, I would rather go to Google Maps, try to figure out where the next coffee shop is. <laughs> but uh, for uh, difficulties, uh, I mean, it depends. Uh, and I think there is, I mean, we'll discuss this today. There is maybe a little bit of also cultural variability. Right. Uh, in some cultures, you ask people for advice. In other cultures, you ask people for emotional support uh, or you want them to listen to you instead of telling you what to do. And I guess in my case, it varies from day to day with language I speak, whom I am surrounded uh, with. Okay. But yeah, if I have a bad day, I probably would ask somebody to listen to me, even though personally, when somebody comes to me, so I should listen, I often get into the position of giving them advice instead yeah, of actually right. just listening and shutting up. I mean, it's quite an old idea, this classic stereotype of men wanting to fix things and, and women wanting someone to listen to them. Paul, from your, ex <laughs> Maybe, your yeah. experience, do you find that, is that, does that bear out in, in the kind of the data? Is there any sort of gender split on this, you know, that men sort of try to be a bit more sort of distant and action oriented and, and, uh, and women tend to be more looking for that emotional sport? 
I don't have the foggiest idea what the data have to say. Um, <laughs> I, I will I will say that I live out that stereotype in my everyday life. Right. Um, There's the data. I'm very happy. I'm very exactly. It's <laughs> but I'm very I'm very happy to give advice and to and to help people when they come to me. But for the longest time, I would sort of instinctively say, "Look, you know, here are the options in your situation, and you know, here's what you should do, and here's it." And it took me many years to realize that in some contexts, this is not what people want. Mm. Right, um, and, and and largely, I re- part part of realization is it's often not what I want. You know, if if I'm my answer to your question, sadly, about who do I go to when I'm in some sort of anguish or trouble, is often nobody. But mm. I've been trying to do better, and I, you know, I have family, I have friends, and then I'll talk to them. And I often don't want concrete suggestions. I want I want a sympathetic ear. Mm. I want somebody to care about me. I want somebody to understand me. It was good. So Paul sent over some papers and various bits and pieces and articles. And there was this idea about when there's an audience, sometimes it drives us to behave in more moral ways. So, and this, this, the reason I wanted to kind of just dive in with this question and and what you think about this, Igor and Paul, is that uh, I was speaking to a friend recently. This sounds like I was speaking to a friend, but it was actually a friend of mine, uh, not me, who, who was saying he was in the situation when someone else said something racist and he was, he didn't know what to do. He didn't know whether he should call the person out on being, you know, it's a sort of subtle thing, you know, he could have just let it go. And that kind of got me thinking about the motivations as what motivates us. Or what, firstly, what would we do in that situation? Do you call someone out? And secondly, what's going on? What are our, what are we really driving if we do decide to intervene? Is it because we want to be seen to be good? Is it because we think we're genuinely going to educate this person? You know, so what are your thoughts? Say, Igor, what do you know? And that's, imagine that scenario. What would you do? And, and what might, if you could be an analytical about it, what might be driving it? That's really interesting. I mean, I didn't have experience with racism, as you describe it. But what I had experience with was a few episodes where uh, something where the behavior didn't seem quite right to me or out of, out of the norm happened. And if it happened the first time, here's what's interesting. If it happens the first time, I often really didn't know what to do. Mm. But then uh, a few times, I just had a discussion about something similar with my wife. And then... I happen to be on the plane and I see somebody trying to change their seat from a very bad seat somewhere at the very back of the plane where they're stuck in between somebody to somewhere in the front. And I was just thinking, like, why would that person ask somebody who has a perfectly fine seat to switch with them? <laughs> and are there, I mean, and, and so, so I asked that person, I mean, I was not really reprimanding them or anything. I just wanted to know what are the reasons. And that turns out he had a good reason because he had a brother nearby and he wanted to be mm. close to his brother, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but, but yeah, so there are often, I, I said, uh, if you have uh, some kind of a knowledge or some kind of a strategy or goal, uh, maybe that would help you to call somebody out. Mm. But I, I'm often shy to do that in public. Mm. I mean, I think it's a different thing if it's online. Well, this is actually one thing we do have psychological data on, which is right. our intuitions about what we would do are very different from what we actually do. Mm. My, my colleague, Marianne LaFrance, once asked a bunch of women, this is studied a long time ago, how they would respond if someone asked inappropriate questions during a job interview. And, um, and you know, almost without exception, women said they would protest, they would walk out, and so on. And then she actually did a simulation where it was sort of a fake job interview. And none of the women did that. They all just sat there. Mm-hmm. Ro- Rosanna Summers just graduated from Yale Law School. I did some psychological work uh, here. And if you ask people, suppose I ask you guys, um, suppose you walk into an experiment and the experimenter asks you right away, could you hand over your cell phone and give me the, the passcode, please? Most people, when, most people would say, there's no way I would do that. And yet most people do it. 
And so, and this is actually a particular case. So it's very easy for me to say, oh, I would protest a racist comment. I would, I would mm-hmm. speak out. The truth is, it's not actual sort of fear. It's not physical cowardice that stops us most of the time. We just don't want to be embarrassed. Mm-hmm. We don't want the awkwardness. It's right. much easier to do nothing. And so I would say that the, the, the honest truth in most of my life when I've seen people act inappropriately, with some notable exceptions, but for most of the time, like everybody else, I do nothing. You know, um, it just occurred to me when you were saying that people would report that they would do something. In, in effect, that's actually kind of an event in itself. When someone says, what would you do? There's, there's a motive, there's, there's a motive there, there when you report what you would claim to do. That's still a chance to show your morality in a way. So even though that sounds like a sort of a shadow event, that's an event in itself isn't it in a way? Yes. 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 And, and, you know, we, we, we want to present ourselves in certain ways. And I think we want to believe of ourselves. Mm-hmm. I, I, I've always been skeptical about the notion of self signaling, but there is, mm-hmm. but I, I think there's something to the idea that when we answer a question like that, we listen to ourselves speak and we're pleased that mm-hmm. we're that kind of person. Yeah. But then the barrier to actually act on that is really quite significant, isn't it? You know, you th- the sort of social awkwardness with making a scene, especially if you're British, you know, we're very good at avoiding that sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm Canadian, so, you know, it's just as bad. Got a little bit and and, and Igor's, right, Igor's right, which is on the internet, all bets are off. Right. On the internet, yeah. you know, people are much more liberated to call out people. And you can see that having a good side, um, I think for most of, most of our lives, we, we encountered the bad side of that, where people are like, you know, screaming obscenities to us who would never do this sort of thing in real life, but they've become uninhibited over Twitter or Facebook. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. there's no cost, I suppose, in that, that scenario. That's right. This reminds me, I just had a conversation last week with somebody in Germany. Uh, you guys may remember that a few years ago during the Christmas market in Berlin, they, they had a truck that went through with some madman. Yeah killing a lot of people. And so I think they have like a virtual museum now where they uh, try to reconstruct the scene and uh, the people at the scene. And so you can sort of immerse yourself in the virtual reality. If I understood it correctly, uh, they're working on something like that. And it turns out like if you try to do that, you suddenly realize that there are a lot of people. Okay, so there's this dead bodies and there is this truck and there are a lot of people just standing in line trying to return their cups uh, for the glue wine, for the modern wine, and they don't do anything. <laughs> and, and and so some, some of the uh, audience, uh, uh, people who, who go through this experience in the uh, virtual reality, they start to get en- enraged. Like, why is there no reaction from those individuals? And I think what you just described, Paul, is exactly like, well, you're just so uncertain. You just don't know what to do. So you just return your cup uh, and you may not even realize because you don't have a script mm-hmm. and, you, you, and you just That's don't right. know what, what exactly is going on. And uh, you better stay away from it. I mean, I, thought, I think their reactions differ. Some people, when they see something tragic happening, they are really drawn to it. The majority of us probably are not. Uh, they are sort of rather want to not be associated with whatever tragic is happening. And, and, and that's right. And it's, I think you put it nicely. You're thinking like a social psychologist. The lack of a script, the lack of a familiar setting. You know, there's all these studies suggesting you're sitting alone in a room and someone starts calling for help. And it's not like you're afraid to get out of the room and look for the person. It's just that you don't exactly, you don't want to look like an idiot. Maybe you're misunderstanding right. the situation. It's very awkward. We do very poorly without scripts. And largely a lot of training, training that uh, police get, military get, EMT, first responders get, it provides them with scripts so they know how to respond in these situations that are unfamiliar for most of us. Shall we get into some empathy then, Igor? Do you think, you know, Paul, you've been writing a lot about empathy. Could we just start maybe with this, a bit of getting um, just a sort of a description of what empathy is in the first place before we sort of tease it apart a little bit? 
I think that's a good way to start. Um, and f- whenever I talk about, about my book and my writings, which are very critical of empathy, I feel I have to start in the most boring place, which is defining my terms. But the problem is people use empathy to refer to all sorts of things. And one, right. one common notion of empathy is just goodness, kindness. Mm-hmm. You know, if I, if I say, Oh, we're going to give people empathy training, we mean we're going to train them to be nicer. Some people say there's not enough empathy in the world. Yeah. And they're just talking about kindness. Now, and, and I'm totally in favor of kindness yeah, and love for the record, and compassion yeah. and morality, yeah. for the record. Yeah. But there's a narrower notion of empathy that often gets used, and this is what I'm criticizing, which is feeling another person's pain, putting yourself in their shoes, feeling what they feel, zooming in on them. And a lot of people seem to think this is sort of an unmitigated good. It makes the world better. But I think there's a lot of reason to believe it leads to very bad moral decisions and leads to all sorts of problems. And we're better off with a more diffuse compassion and when it comes to making more decisions, more rational modes of accomplishing this. Right. So, so just, just, to, just to very quickly dive in, two immediate problems with empathy is that it's innumerate because we feel empathy for a single person. Relying on empathy leads us unable to distinguish between something that could uh, kill 100 people versus something that could kill one person. And in fact, right. there's some evidence that, that because of empathy, we often have these real perverse decisions where we'll value the one more than a hundred. And then the second problem with empathy is that we empathize with people who look like us, who are a member of our group, who are, uh, who share our interests, who are attractive. And it leads to all sorts of biases, which I think upon reflection, we could say that's a lousy way to do it. So uh, if I may interject, Paul, so one thing that uh, some philosophers and lay people also talk about is this notion of sympathy. So how would you say, should one differentiate, in your opinion, empathy from sympathy? Well, people, again, use the term sympathy in different ways. And, and in fact, the terms used to be synonymous. Um, right. uh, what we, what we, how I'm using empathy is what uh, this philosophers like um, Adam Smith and David Hume would use, sympathy. Yes. I, th- I think sympathy, and to some extent even empathy, might be good moral motivators at times. But I think sympathy, when it comes to moral decision-making, inherits all of the problems that empathy has. So suppose I have to figure out you know, how to distribute resources or who should I protest to or how should I spend my time? I'm going to feel much more empathy and much more sympathy for, you know, a middle-aged white male professor than for, say, somebody of dark skin living in the other side of the world or somebody who's my political enemy or just somebody who's unattractive or scary. Sympathy, empathy, they're highly biased. And I think we become our, at our best when we make decisions and we pull away from these moral, these biased emotions and we apply more fair and impartial methods. Are you kind of saying that we just have to accept that humans have this sort of tribal quality and therefore we might as well accept that and roll with it and, and sort of move around that fact? Is there any way that, because I get frustrated with this idea that just, that's just the way it is. is, is it, does it just have to be like that? Can the circle not be made to include everyone? So I, I think we can trans, I think we are by nature, by evolution, yeah. extremely tribal creatures. Uh, and I think our emotions bear that history. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, who you feel, what you feel guilty about, ashamed, grateful, angry, is all calibrated by our tribal feelings. But I also think, and I wouldn't be doing this work if I didn't believe this, that we could transcend it. Mm-hmm. I can appreciate it a, through reason, through my intellect, that the life of somebody in, um, in faraway Africa matters as much as the life of my sons. Mm-hmm. I don't feel that way. My emotions are very different. But intellectually, I could appreciate that. And so I could understand why we should have laws and policies and choices that respect the lives of people very far from my 
intimate circle of those I care about. That's really interesting, Paul. I mean, I'm wondering, so this distinction between a cognition and emotion that some psychologists uh, used to play with for the good part of the 20th century, of course, it's often a little bit more artificial than it actually is. Our emotions build on cognitive process and vice versa. And so what you're suggesting is like more of this cognitive route where you try to intellectually appreciate, as you said, other people in other parts of the world. And I guess uh, some people may say, but uh, isn't there a possibility of an emotional route where you, or maybe that it will in turn sort of in, impact how you would feel towards these other people by starting to appreciate into, uh, intellectually how they live and what their circumstances are. I'm specifically talking about this uh, set of theoretical frameworks, probably fairly dominant right now in emotion research, that view emotions as being sort of constructions or based on some kind of cognitive so-called appraisals of the situation. So what are your thoughts on that? So do you you think there is no feedback loop? Or if there is a feedback loop, what do you think would it look like? No, I I, I agree with a lot of what you're saying. I think that in just to take one particular thing, a lot of our emotions are highly informed by our belief systems. So what you right. feel guilty about, for instance, rests a lot on your complicated moral beliefs and assumptions. Who you feel angry at builds upon your sense of justice, which itself is something which can get extremely articulated and sophisticated as you get older. Absolutely. But here's one way of putting this. Take the people who you love most in the world and think about your feelings towards them. Then think about a faraway stranger. I don't doubt we could kind of nurture our emotions till we care, so that we care about the faraway stranger. But what I think is literally impossible for a human to do is love the stranger as they love the friends and family. And I think when you ask people to do it, it falls apart. So then the question is, so how in the world could we have a just system that treats all people alike? And the answer to that is, to some extent, where we use our reason, our rationality. At a gut mm-hmm. level, my family matters so much more than strangers, my neighbors more than strangers, friendly, attractive people more than ugly, frightening people. But I could say, when it comes to building a law or a policy, or even deciding where to give to charity, I should say, forget about all that. Forget about my emotional pull. I'm just going to use my head. Movements like effective altruism, that are success at creating impartial laws and procedures, suggest that we're capable of that, at least some of the time. So what is your opinion then about this uh, idea that some maybe ecologically minded or evolutionary minded psychologists and philosophers uh, say that uh, emotions provide you some kind of information about the environment. I entirely agree with that. But Mm -hmm. emotions are calibrated and have evolved to help our reproductive success, to help spread our genes. They haven't evolved to be moral. Mm -hmm. And so my emotions say the life of my son is worth the life of a thousand other people. And that's actually from an evolutionary point of view a very smart consideration from the point of my genes. Right. But I could step back and say, well, you know, if, if that's true of you, if, if you guys as well, then we can't all be right. No and from an impartial spectator view, and every, every system of morality and theology and philosophy pulls back from the individual. I could say, well, that's actually not, it's a crappy morality. It's great evolution, but bad morality. Or to take another example, we have emotions of anger and disgust towards things that, upon reflection, aren't bad at all. So I think, to some extent, our reason allows us to transcend the dictates that have been programmed into us by evolution. So you, from the sounds of it, it says where you're suggesting that empathy is actually quite sort of, if you're working within your own tribe, 
you know, with the people that you come across on a daily basis, you know, friends and family, we don't need to get all rational, compassionate about them. But you're, you're talking, are you suggesting if you're starting to take decisions that affect people beyond your tribe, then you need to adopt, um, you need to then be against empathy. So you're talking kind of policy level rather than this is how you get on better with your friends and family. At this point, uh, my friends, <laughs> like you, always try to rescue me, and they try to say, "Well, okay, so here's a reasonable construal of your view." <laughs> um, I, I actually, I, I agree with what you say, which is the flaws of empathy really show themselves when you deal outside your tribe. But I think even if you're talking about people you love, empathy, in the narrow sense we're talking about, is a very unreliable guide. So take your interactions with your children. I'm talking about kids a lot today, and. Mm-hmm. If, if you're driven by, by empathy, by, by you will actually not be a good parent. You wouldn't be able to give them a vaccine shot. You wouldn't be able to cause them anything that causes them pain. And you can see that love pulls apart from empathy in that sort of case. Because I love my kids, I get them to do all sorts of things they don't want mm. that cause them short-term misery, like not going to a party or, taking, or having vaccines in order to, to improve their lives in the long term. So empathy is not only biased spatially, as it were, focusing mm-hmm. us on the clear, on the close rather than the far. It's also biased temporally because it sort of greedily focuses on the present and not the future. So here's one more thing that some uh, psychologists probably ask you millions of times when they heard you uh, talk about empathy or read your book. And that is, what is your view on the relationship between empathy and perspective taking, which is uh, more of a cognitive construct and sometimes also conflated with the idea of empathy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and empathy is different. I told you, you said at the outset, right. empathy has different meanings, and you're entirely right. One notion of empathy is perspective-taking or mind-reading. I kind of understand the world as you. I, I know what's going on in your head. I know what you're thinking. I know what you're feeling. And my opinion about that is that could be a tremendous force for good. Suppose I'm trying to make the world a better place. I'm not going to be able to do that unless I know what makes people happy. Mm-hmm. Suppose I'm trying to buy you, Igor, a birthday present. Well, I'm not going to make you happy unless I know what you want. Even having a pleasant conversation requires some ability to understand what's in the minds of others. So to do good, the perspective taking you're talking about is essential. But suppose I'm a torturer or a sadist or con man or seducer or bully. Then I also benefit from going, knowing what goes on in your head. I'm a much more effective bully if I know what, make, what hurts people. I'm a much more effective con man if I could manipulate people's beliefs. So I think perspective taking, and sometimes people call this cognitive empathy, is neither moral mm-hmm. or immoral. Oral. It's amoral. It's a form of intelligence. And like any other form of intelligence, it could be used for good or evil. Uh, that's very interesting. So would you say that there's a psychopath, for instance, that, and I'm not sure, uh, you probably know this literature much better than I do. Are they more, some, some of them are very good perspective taking, right? So but, uh, are they also good at uh, trying to feel what other people are feeling? So what is the differentiation there um, in terms so, of like how they assess others' emotions and how they feel towards the victims? So that's absolutely fascinating. And it's a matter of quite a bit of debate in the field. But my understanding is for at least some cases, you see a strong difference where psychopaths, some psychopaths can be extremely adroit at manipulating other people and knowing what other people think. And so they have strong cognitive empathy in the sense you're talking about. But they lack uh, effective empathy, emotional empathy, the sort of empathy I'm talking about. So for instance, um, they can trick somebody and cause them a lot of pain very Mm -hmm. cleverly, but they don't feel the other person's pain. 
In particular, Abigail Marsh has argued that they are very, uh, they have a lot of problems feeling other people's fear. Right. They could frighten people, but they don't themselves catch the fear of others. I suppose it's that this is kind of probably what drives resistance to your arguments, isn't it? People begin to think, hmm, you know, encouraging people to abandon the idea of feeling what other people feel sounds like, um, it sounds like a thin end of a witch that leads to psychopathy. For psychopathy. Yeah, so, I mean, that's probably where it's coming from, isn't it? That resistance. It comes from different <laughs> forms. I, th- I think people uh, like the idea of feelings. I think people, uh, when you tell them your feelings could lead you astray, you shouldn't listen to your heart. Mm-hmm. They kind of rebel against that. I've, I've written some stuff on disgust, arguing that disgust, in particular sexual disgust, is... Um, a useful is a very poor moral guide. You know, a lot of people feel sexual disgust towards those who have different sexual preferences than they do. Mm-hmm. And to a liberal audience, it's not difficult to convince them that this sort of gut feeling leads them astray. Mm-hmm. But I think it's much harder for empathy. As for the particular argument about low empathy and psychopathy, um, it's true that psychopaths test low on empathy scores. They really do have low empathy in the sense I'm talking about. At the same time, though, people with autism and Asperger's syndrome also test low on the same scales. Mm-hmm. And yet people with autism and Asperger's syndrome are not bad people. In fact, some of them are sort of very moral. Mm-hmm. They take morality very seriously and try to be good to others. They're much more often, you know, the victims of cruelty than the perpetrators. Right. So, so I think what also happens in these discussions is people get bl- mix up empathy in a sense of feeling other people's pain with compassion, Mm. which is caring about people. And uh, these two are very different. And I think it's compassion that makes somebody a good person. Empathy uh, leads to bad moral decisions. And actually, in a day-to-day, we haven't discussed this yet, but on a day-to-day basis, um, you're not going to be very good at helping people if you become awash with their agony. Mm. I think the very best doctors and cops and EMT workers and nurses are people who care a lot about people, high compassion, but have pretty low empathy. So, Paul, how do you differentiate this notion of rational compassion from what philosophers talk about? Some philosophers also seem to be conflating that with the idea of empathy. What is your sort of like, if you were to provide the lay audience a distinction between those two? Well, empathy is is feeling other people's Mm -hmm. feelings, particularly their suffering, and letting that guide you into your moral decisions. And I would argue that that's biased, it's enumerated, it has all sorts of problems. Rational compassion has... Two parts. It breaks up. It breaks up the problem of morality into two parts and has a solution for each one. So one problem is: what do you do? What's the right thing to do? When should I urge my country to go to war? What charity should I give to? Who's should I go visit somebody to to reassure them about something? And I would argue you should do it rationally. You should mm-hmm. use, do, use reflective. You should use reflection and impartial judgment. Of course, there's no precise recipe for how to do this, but we have right. some idea. But that isn't all. You know, so every philosopher would, would at this point jump in with David Hume and say, knowing the right thing to do isn't enough. You need to see some kick in the pants to make you do it. Right. I could know the best thing to do is give money to this group, but I could say, well, I don't want to do it. I like my money too much. Yeah. And that's where compassion comes in. And by compassion, I simply mean valuing other people. Mm-hmm. And I think these two ingredients, neither of which involve feeling others' pain, really make for a really good person. Mm-hmm. So then the fundamental question here is, why is it that we care so much about empathy? Why do people, why, why are people resisting? Is it just, as you said, about that they like emotions and feelings? 
Or is there something special about empathy in our current zeitgeist that we, we have so many books about it, we have so many talk shows, TED Talks and whatnot. What, what is your sense uh, about our current society that we live in, why we care so much about it? It's a good question. I think part of it is just that, that the notion gets blurred together with other things. Mm. So, you know, when you remind people that you could talk sensibly about loving somebody separate from feeling their pain, sometimes people go, oh, okay, I could see. I see they're two different things. But I think another answer is that for whatever reason, there's a tremendous intimacy and connection that empathy could provide. And this is why I'm not against it more generally. So I think it's a core part of, say, romantic and sexual relationships, that sort of interconnection that it gives you. And so it's hard to step back and say, yeah, but that leads to all sorts of moral mistakes when you kind of ratchet it up. It, it, it's as if I'm sort of saying, uh, you know, I'm against, when it comes to moral decision-making, for instance, I'm also against loving your children. I think loving your children is great. But when it comes to broader policy decisions, it's really corrosive. And in fact, we have laws against nepotism specifically to block it. But if you say to somebody, I'm against loving, loving your children, um, understandably, they kind of freak out. Is, is that the next title of the next book? Uh, yes, my next, uh, <laughs> against right children. after I publish, uh, <laughs> right after I publish Against Kittens. Yeah. Um, I have a, a, I have, this could I have be a whole, whole series. series of, yeah. Yes, yeah. yes. That's what will chronicle my decline as a scholar and a person. <laughs> so maybe, uh, Charles, I think we talked a, a lot about empathy, but I think the other topic that you and I talked about that we may want to pick uh, Paul's brain on is this uh, switches from empathy to cruelty. And the, the one natural connection may be this notion of dehumanization. And maybe you can uh, lead the way into this next segment. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, I remember being uh, a child at school in history lessons and often when they would talk about the holocaust they would talk about how the only way it was possible for people to behave so inhumanely towards the jews was by essentially um arriving at a point where they didn't consider them humans anymore and that's kind of a, a common idea you know, if i was to speak to friends about it they would say oh yeah dehumanization this is yeah. what enables such horrific acts but um you're saying this perhaps there's some gaps in kind of the logic of this. Uh, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, um, I, I, I've heard that too as a kid, and I hear this a lot now. The language, people talk about dehumanization a lot, particularly these days when there's a lot of what you might see as dehumanizing rhetoric, particularly in American politics. Mm. And it's not wrong. I think often we fail to recognize other people's humanity, and this licenses us to do terrible things to them, to enslave them, to kill them. I think the evidence for this is hard to dispute. In fact, you know, scholars like David Livingston Smith, who've written some wonderful, important work on, on dehumanization, you know, point out that often people explicitly say this group isn't human and that group isn't human. Mm -hmm. But I do think it's very incomplete. Mm -hmm. And many, many philosophers and historians have pointed this out. So you used the example of the Holocaust. One thing that doesn't fit into dehumanization is often the sort of cruelties and degradations and tortures and humiliations that were done on, uh, on innocent people during the Holocaust. And you don't expect that if you don't think of them as human. You know, if I think of you as a cockroach, I might just want to kill you or not care about you, but why would I torture you? Why would I want you to admit the crimes we both know you didn't do? Why would I, why would I force you to renounce your faith? Why would I do all that? Mm -hmm. And 
I think there's another perspective now, which is equally powerful, which is that a lot of the, the cruelty that we do is born not out of failing to recognize other people's humanities, but out of a full appreciation of others' humanity. I might, want, I might think you're morally horrible and want you to be punished. I might want to dominate you. I might get a pleasure out of, out of being superior for you, out of ruling over you in some sort of social hierarchy. And so I think alongside dehumanization is cruelty that's in full acknowledgement of the humanity of others. And sort of relies on it, I suppose. I guess it's this idea that there's no point teaching someone a lesson unless they can learn a lesson, you know, unless they're worthy of a lesson, almost. Yes, exactly. Exactly. That's right. If a dog bites me, you know, I might say, oh, that's, you know, I might want, I might want to get rid of the dog. I might want to kill the dog so it doesn't bite anybody else. But why would I torture the dog unless I felt that this is its due? There's Tage Ray and, uh, and Alan Fisk have a book called Virtuous Violence, where they point out a lot of the violence done to other people. The perpetrators don't feel ashamed. They don't feel indifferent. They feel, I'm doing the right thing here. This is, they're getting what they deserve. So what I was wondering about, Paul, when there is one way to think about it, and that's sort of like either or, but it seems to me that probably, and you would probably agree with that, but I'm just thinking what you think. Uh, uh, it's sort of like a feedback loop here. So you can uh, do it because you want to degrade the person, establish your status, establish your power. But then you need possibly something to justify your actions and make yourself feel better about uh, why you do that. Because as long as you assume that those are human beings, you will not feel good about yourself. So maybe that's when the dehumanization kicks in, uh, more as a post hoc justification of your actions. What do you think about I, this idea? I actually, I actually agree with that. I think that there are different ways in which they could uh, relate. And one way in which things could occur, which, which does occur, and you pointed out, is you do terrible things to somebody and you like it. You like dominating them. You feel they're getting what they deserve. You know, you take a fair amount of sadistic pleasure in the suffering of others. And then afterwards, you say, huh, that was something. Uh, maybe I shouldn't have done that. And then you justify it to yourself and others by saying, well, they weren't really people. Right. And then and another way is sort of, is, is the sort of where you see both of these sitting alongside each other is you might want to punish somebody. Hitler, when he described his motivation for putting Jews in concentration camps, was very explicit. He said, this will teach them a lesson. This will, yeah. this will pay them back for what they did before. But then a lot of the people, the concentration camp guards, and a lot of the population were just sort of persuaded. These aren't really people. You could use, you could yourself be caught up in a moral moral fervor, but try to induce others to dehumanize so that they follow your lead. Mm -hmm. And and this isn't just, we're talking about atrocities here, but in in some of my work, uh, there's a feminist literature, for instance, um, Kate Mann has done some interesting work where the argument is that a lot of misogynistic violence by men towards women isn't because men are objectifying women, thinking of them as less than human, it's rather because men are outraged by uh, what they view as the as how women are treating them unfairly. They're not doing what they're supposed to. They're belittling them. They're humiliating them. There's this this quote that was in a uh, Margaret Atwood quote that yes. I think yeah. was in one of your pieces. And it kind of, I read it and it sort of really sent a chill down my spine. I wonder if you could like tell mm-hmm. me a little bit about, so it, the, here's the quote. It is um, Margaret Atwood. It said, men are afraid that women will laugh at them and women are afraid that men will kill them. Um, yes. That sounds obviously yeah. quite... Um, an economical way of describing the relationship between men and women. What's, what's going on there? 
so uh, it's a lovely quote. It's not verbatim. She actually, Margaret Rich actually describes in terms of a dialogue she had with somebody. Mm-hmm. But the but the point it's it's the first part which I'm zooming in, which is that why are men so terrible to women? Well, people have all sorts of reasons for being terrible to one another. But but one core reason expressed in this quote is they feel women are judging them. They feel women are maybe disrespect them. And that could motivate a lot of violence and, you know, and a lot of cruelty. And mm-hmm. it's important because it's such a shift away from the perspective, oh, these violent men don't see, women, don't see women as people. It's entirely the opposite. They see women as threats. You know, if I feel that you are, that you think I'm a loser, that you think I'm a failure, that can be very angry at you. And I'm not dehumanizing you in the slightest. I'm angry at you because mm-hmm. you are having such human feelings towards me. And I think this paradigm can extend to a lot of racial interactions where, you know, where you find, you sometimes find dehumanization in in racial and ethnic conflict, but often you find feelings that you're being disrespected, that that there's not enough gratitude, that these people are going to, um, you know, white supremacists um, carried signs uh, in one of the rallies, in the Charleston rally in the States uh, about a year ago. And one of the signs, this great sign was, you will not replace us. Mm-hmm. And the anxiety that that conveys, I think, tells you something about where a lot of the ugliest part of our psyches come from. It's not like, I don't, we don't care about you, you're just things, you're animals. It's really, you, we are going to stand up against you in this battle for domination. You, as in, you wouldn't think you could be replaced unless you thought that it was a real possible. You know, you wouldn't fight against such an idea unless you considered it a valid or plausible outcome. And you would only think that if you considered these people humans. Like exactly, and 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 at a lower level, putting aside violence and everything, just talking about people's political choices. I'm not mm-hmm. sure how much of of Trump's victory could be explained by this, but. It's certainly true that a lot of the people who voted for Trump felt that Democrats and liberals had scorn for them, had right. real scorn for them. And this motivated a response of the sort, I'll show you. Yeah, it's really interesting. It leads to possibly different types of interventions if you want to reduce this form of cruelty in a society and this type of reactions instead of just... Uh, there's this kind of like enlightenment idea that dehumanization uh, researchers uh, uh, promote. I think it's a very admirable one, uh, but your work suggests that, and what we just discussed suggests that it's not the only way to proceed, and it may in fact not be always effective to just tell people that these are actually humans and teach them that these are actually humans, (laughs) and that will solve all problems. Yeah. Yeah, they clearly know that already. The the, the dehumanization work is as such an optimistic uh, conclusion, which is we can make the world so much better by just explaining they're people. And, you know, and since they are people, you've got to just correct the mistake. And then, and then cruelty would go away and people would be kinder to each other. And it is so optimistic. And my view and the view of people I'm, I'm sort of channeling here is so, is so not optimistic. Mm-hmm. It says that because we are dealing with people and the point that you know, we're exploring here is that that has obvious benefits in terms of acknowledging the humanity of others, but acknowledging the humanity of others has all sorts of dangers. And so I think, I think whatever solutions there are, and I have nothing particular to add, 
it isn't a matter of just giving people more information about the humanity of others. I was just going to say that it's it's odd that you've been able to come to dehumanization and and, and find a, an even more negative interpretation. Of it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. Um, to lay even further, uh, another form of cruelty, so we are talking here with Paul Bloom about uh, cruelty and empathy, is this idea of aggregate cruelty. Now, Paul, you talked about or written about Parfit's harmless torture experiment. So this experiment when hypothetical philosophical experiment when thousand torturers each turn the dial thousand times on their own victim, it's viewed as horrible, and when each of the thousand torturers turn the dial thousand times each turn shocking a different of the thousand victims, it feels less morally wrong. Did I get it right? What is this uh, notion of harmless torturer about, and why do you think it's so important uh, for our current understanding of the social media, which I don't think it was intended to explain initially, but it's really interesting how this kind of hypothetical experiment seems to be highly relevant now. No, it's very interesting. This is uh, from a New York Times article I wrote with a Yale graduate student, uh, Matt Jordan. And um, and we built from Derek Parfit's famous example. And like you said, this was just meant as sort of a problem of utilitarianism. So that utilitarianism says that something's immoral to the extent it has a negative effect. But if you injure somebody so mildly they don't feel it, and then a thousand other people do the same until that person's in agony, it doesn't feel like anybody's done anything wrong, even though the net result has been terrible. And right. what, what Matt and I argue is that this hypothetical example has become real in social media. So people talk, say, over Twitter and Facebook and so on, about the real bad actors, the, the death threats, the rape threats, and so on. But we were concerned about the fact that all of the sort of, just the snarky comments, the liking of them, the reposting of them, and... Each act I do, and I, do, I used to do a lot of this. You know, I wasn't ever, never, you know, a bully, but I, if somebody said something really funny about a figure that was kind of nasty, I might like it or retweet it. Mm -hmm. And, and, but it turns out along the lines of Parfit that each of my acts doesn't have any effect. It's just like, it's like voting. It's tiny. But if I'm one of a thousand people, 10,000 people, 100,000 people, we're all doing it leads to effects that could drive people to suicide, that could ruin people's lives. And Matt and I, at the end of our article, related more generally, it's something like, you know, microaggressions, mm -hmm. which I used to sort of be skeptical about. But now I see, I see the concern, which is, I make a little comment to my colleague, a little sexist joke or something like that, it's just something, and it's no big deal. I say to myself, it's no big deal. And maybe I'm right. Maybe it is no big deal. But what if I'm one of a thousand people doing it? And then it becomes a very big deal indeed. And I think in this modern world we live in, we have to accept the fact that our very small acts get magnified and can have tragic consequences. It's really interesting. Sometimes uh, you see uh, websites uh, from different uh, news outlets uh, where after the article, there either are uh, spaces for comments or they're turned off. You see the same on YouTube pages where sometimes comments are turned off and For me, it almost like indicates, uh oh, that's a very contentious topic. That's why they yes. turned it off. And yes. I think that's to prevent some of this potentially. Yes. And certain behaviors you'd never do in the real world. You know, I, I can't remember the last time I've called somebody an obscenity, you know, in their face, really not a stranger. But but online, it just comes so easy. And as one of you mentioned before, it carries no, no cost. Yeah. 
I was I was just thinking that this idea of the harmless torturer came up prior to the technological tools which have sort of brought it into the real world. So, and you know, you were saying earlier about how our emotions are often driven from an evolutionary biological perspective. You know, these are ancient little algorithms we've got knocking around in us. But and now we've got this tool which means something that wouldn't really have done that much damage before, now all of a sudden can, but we've got this very outdated programming. So in a way, we kind of have to have a little bit of, I'm not sure if it's empathy or sympathy, a little bit of understanding for these people who are kind of using this emotional response, which really like, ten, you know, obviously 50,000 years ago, but 20 years ago, wouldn't have been able to have such negative consequences. And now because of a, a technological innovation, that's uh, that can cause a huge problem. So are we being too judgmental, expecting people to have caught up so quickly? I like that. I, I, I like that question. I, I, I appreciate the spirit of it, which is, you know, you take somebody who makes kind of jokes, maybe sort of cutting jokes, and they don't feel like a bad person. Mm-hmm. And in a simpler time, maybe they wouldn't be a bad person. You know, it's, it's, you know a bit of teasing, a bit of playfulness mm-hmm. could be fine. And it's just not intuitive that you are not one person. You are, are one of a large group of people that get accelerated through social media and through our world of strangers. And so I think in some way we should be very sympathetic to these offenders, and I think I'm, I'm often one of them and say, you know, look, this doesn't feel wrong, but you just have to think and realize that, that, it, that you need to reevaluate your, your actions. But I think for the most part, for, for these sort of microaggression-like behaviors, or blame is not the right response. I think we should be sympathetic to people who do these things and just try to gently cause people to evaluate the effects of their actions because it just isn't intuitive. Mm. You know, I, I read this book by John Ronson called So You've Been Publicly Shamed about yeah. internet shaming and so mm-hmm. on. And these are people whose lives are destroyed. But my bet is that, that there's such strange crimes because the people who have gone on to do all this are, for the most part, not bad people. And, and they actually don't need to be blamed. They just need to sort of come to realize the consequences of their actions. The individual uh, act the little the, the one retweeting probably is feels relatively commensurate with the stupid tweet the victim sent you know but but the, they're missing a large part of the picture that there's like 10,000 other tweets but you know that's they didn't deliver those other tweets you know so exactly their, their judgment sort of feels appropriate with the the crime you know sort of thing exactly exactly so so that's right if if there were just two people in the world you and me and you say some some dumbass thing and I go on Twitter and I say, that's a dumbass thing. Oh, that's fine. You know, you, you know, you would, maybe you'd only have was, one follower anyway. I, I have one follower, right? Yeah. Maybe you block me. The two person Twitter dilemma. But now if I'm just saying that, and then, you know, 10,000 other people call you a dumbass, then you, it's horrible. But in some way, unless I'm fully aware of that, I don't know if I should be blamed. I should just sort of think harder about these things. Hmm. Aren't a lot of these people um, simply taking advantage of an opportunity to be moral? That's what they feel that they're doing. They're saying, look, you put a racist tweet out there. I'm going to call you out on it. That's that's a, a chance for me yep. to be moral. Is, is yep. that not what's driving most of these people? I think it's, it's different things. I think it, mm. it is that. 
a desire to to want to punish the person for an immoral act. And then I think it's also, to a large extent, wanting to affiliate with a crowd. Mm-hmm. So I, I have my cutting remark, and then other people like my remark, and I feel fulfilled. I feel mm-hmm. I feel like I've been acknowledged as a moral person. It's sort of morality on the cheap, because I punish, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I punish the bad guy. And what does it take me? 20 seconds of typing and no risk at all. Right. And I get and I get the buzz of award as if I rescued a child from a burning building. You know? so, yeah, it's, it sounds like um, you know this idea of slacktivism. Like you get to sort of yes. do, but like moralivism. I don't know, like slack morality. Like you say, you you get you know you're on the train. You've had a day at work of doing whatever, probably nothing morally good or bad, as far as you can tell. And then you just get given to you this opportunity to just be a bit moral, and you're like, yeah, I'll take some of that. Yeah, yes. yeah, I'm a regular cape crusader in my in my basement just <laughs> it's interesting away I'm, I'm also thinking in this type of environment it doesn't matter what you get an appreciation for if you say something now on facebook about how great the ice cream was or how much uh you resisted the temptation to eat the ice cream you may get at least <laughs> as many uh up likes or whatever uh than uh, if you would really do something uh, heroic and in fact sometimes those heroic things so it's like you you put it on the same level and I guess that's what you meant, uh, Charles, with this kind of relativism, and and uh, because it's then judged just by this uh, simple uh, approval or disapproval of messages on the social media. Yeah, that's, with, exactly, that's exactly right. Yeah, with this, we mentioned it right at the beginning. This idea of um, well, I don't know if we specifically said third party punishment, but one of the problems from from a link I saw in in an article of yours I read, Paul, was this this idea that. We, we do get sort of rewarded for punishing people. We, it, you know, there is a gain to be had from punishing yeah. people. And it also, it seems that the bigger the audience, well, the audience definitely has an effect on how likely people are to punish others. So, you know, you've got the internet, it's a big, pretty big audience. <laughs> um, yeah. So that's a problem as well, that, that you're, these micro-moral acts are sort of magnified by the fact that you're doing it on this huge international stage. That's right. That's right. It's a, uh, you know, this, I think some, you might be talking about an article by my uh, colleague, Molly Crockett, who wrote mm-hmm. some wonderful stuff on right. moral outrage online. And, you know, Molly points out that the, the moral economy of social media is entirely out of whack where, you know, things that, that should be costly are free. Right. That, uh, and, and you have these runaway factors and so on. And, um, you know, how an individual is to respond to this could vary. <laughs> One option is to get off of it. Or at mm-hmm. least not not participate in it, but uh, but I, I think another option more promising is to develop a culture maybe where uh, where piling on is disapproved of instead of approved of, and if if you can develop that culture because we're so sensitive to social incentives, people behave better. Mm. It's very challenging, it seems to me, because uh, the culture, the sort of engineered culture on social media, which is often driven by the companies, develops often uh, very rapidly. And uh, you, you also never know oh, which of these tools that are intended for one particular usage will have these uh, dramatic consequences on the emotional and moral, uh, in the emotional moral domain. I'm just thinking, I don't, I don't think uh, the Facebook intended uh, the like and dislike, at least initially, to have these consequences. It seems to me that it's uh, really important to, to engage across these uh, platforms and have more possibly interaction between the I don't know, moral philosophers and scientists on the one hand and engineers who actually develop and change our culture uh, very dramatically on the other hand. I'm probably super idealistic because uh, there are a lot of uh, reasons why that doesn't happen that much. 
I like the idea too, but you are being idealistic in the sense that <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think that the people who run the platforms reasonably enough just want people to use their platforms. They want to make money and they want to get a good business Correct. model. And because of this, the fact that people go onto platforms to express moral outrage, if that gets them a lot of their traffic, they would not want to discourage it. Could one think of it slightly differently and create alternative ways of demonstrating your morality? Like I was just just thinking of Eagle's idea of like parallel tools. Like if you had buttons that you could just press and like, I don't know, either like awareness things that were done around certain campaigns or you could donate five cents to a certain charity or something just i just thinking if people are being driven let's some portion of this community is being driven by the desire to be moral but the only ways they can do it is through moral outrage if parallel tools parallel pathways could be created to it's a lovely idea out. yeah it's i mean ima- imagine again no but it's a lovely idea i mean imagine a world where fine you could retweet something that somebody does to ridicule the racist richard spencer or you know, or the sex, you know, the sex offender Harvey Weinstein. But as you did that, it automatically gave a ten cent donation to some appropriate cause to make the world better. Right, and that and <laughs> that, that was, was signal too. So you're not only a punisher, but you're also a little micro donator. Imagine yeah. that could be installed. What a change that could make. It's a good point uh, in the show to ask Paul what he thinks <laughs> in the first place could be the practical implications both for empathy, dehumanization and this sort of social outrage that happens, the aggregate cruelty that happens on social media. So there's a lot of sort of specific suggestions you could make. Um, uh, we talked about some ideas for social media, which I think are actually very cool. I think regarding empathy, one, for instance, one immediate suggestion is there are certain uh, things we have in our society that are very empathy-based and have terrible consequences, I think. One of my favorite examples is something really bad is victim statements where a victim of a crime gets to make a statement and that affects the, the sentencing of the, the person who's been convicted. And that it, the statement is often a, a blatant appeal to empathy. And as a result, the practical consequence of this would be that, say, someone who is a, a white woman, her assailant will have a higher penalty than someone who's less empathic to a white audience. Mm-hmm. There's all sorts of problems with that. I guess more generally, you have shifts in cultures. And I'd like to shift away to whatever extent from a culture of empathy and feelings to a culture of rationality where, you know, decision makers are respected if they make a decision about healthcare, for instance, based on how many people it helps rather than on shocking stories they tell, Mm. where when people decide to go to war, they give good argument for going to war as opposed to, you know, dramatic tales of the horrors committed upon our people. And I think we see this in local ways. I think um, Steve Pinker argued that um, one of the major reasons for the tremendous decline of violence through history is a shift from a culture of honor to a culture of dignity. And I can think if we approximate something like a culture of reason, the world would go much better. Can I uh, nip in with a, uh, a very different question? Very, very small. Is um, say tomorrow, my wife comes home upset. Should I be against empathy or should I be, should I try and feel what she feels? What do you think, Paul? Final, final word on the human level. So this is a sort of your mileage may vary thing as to what your wife wants. Right. But I guess what I would say is that what she probably wants and most benefits from is A, you understanding her, perspective taking, B, you caring about her, wanting to make her life better. But if you get upset with her, 
to some extent, that could make things worse and not better. If I'm extremely, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a simple case for me. If I'm extremely anxious, which has happened, and I talk to somebody, I, they, I am much better off if they are calm. If I am sad, I am much better off if they don't get sad with me. They get anxious, they get sad. Now, instead of having one problem, I have two problems. And so a good listener, a kind and intelligent, compassionate person could do a lot that an empathic person can. Okay, we got to the end of our show for today. And uh, we had a wonderful guest, Paul Bloom, on the show. Paul, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, thank you so much for finding the time. It was uh, amazing and, as usual, very illuminating to listen and to discuss this very important topics with you. And so here's what we discussed. Uh, we discussed the notion of empathy, and we contrasted it with the idea of deliberation, of rationality and reason, and uh, that we should not necessarily be subject to our impulsive emotional effects, and instead of that, maybe use our reason more often because there are possible dark sides to empathy, including preference for our in-groups, preference for people who are close to us, uh, and different moral judgments for those as compared to those people who are further away. We discussed the difference between compassion and empathy, and we also switched uh, to this notion of dehumanization and how some of the aggressive behaviors and cruelty that we see in the world may not necessarily be because People constantly dehumanize other groups, but because they want to establish power, uh, hierarchy, and uh, it is precisely because they consider others as humans that they uh, behave uh, aggressively. So it's a complementary approach to other very important dehumanization approaches that exist to explain aggression and cruelty. And finally, we talked about social media and punishment of social media and how uh, seemingly mild acts of saying something very simple on uh, Facebook or Twitter can have dramatic consequences when it's aggregated. Uh, and this aggregate cruelty can really be damaging, but we don't see it. And the reason we don't see it is because on social media, we often cannot uh, uh, see what other people have done. We feel like we just did a tiny bit to show how moral we are, whereas in reality, what we do is really hurt others. So this was the general summary so far. Paul, did I forget anything? It was a perfect summary. Hey, thank you guys for having me on. This was tons of fun. Thanks thank for, you so much. Yeah, enjoyed it. Wonderful. Uh, to our listeners, once again, thank you for continuing to support us and to listen to us. And please consider rating us on iTunes uh, so that others can also see our show. We will only be able to uh, be present if iTunes sees the value of this through your ratings. Thank you again. And um, until the next one. Bye.